This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Kian Zandier, CEO of Sturgeon Capital, an investment management company based in London. I have been talking to Kian for a few years now. When we first spoke, Sturgeon had an Iranian-focused fund, which they don't manage anymore. And it grabbed my attention because investing in markets where there is an asymmetric opportunity is something that I always liked. And today, Kian has something else really interesting and that few people are paying attention, investment in Uzbekistan. And we are going to discuss is now. So Kian, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Marcello. Pleasure. Kian, could you please tell us a little bit about Sturgeon Capital? Sure. So Sturgeon uh, was founded 15 years ago uh, as a London-based asset manager. And the premise was always to invest in frontier markets, but more specifically, uh, the countries um, within Central Asia and the core. So if you want to be romantic about it, the old Silk Road countries. And we've done nothing else but invest in, in both public and private equity in the region. And the way we operate is obviously we're London-based, but we always have teams on the ground in the countries that we invest in. The reason for that structure is if you're locally based, you, you, you find you quickly pick up local biases. Uh, if you're based in London, you have no idea what's going on. So we just travel back and forth a lot with um, the local team on the ground. Um, and as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, Uzbekistan at the moment is, is a country of focus for us, uh, which I guess we'll get the opportunity to discuss a bit further now. Sure. Uh, actually, right now, because um, Sturgeon is focused on Uzbekistan, as you mentioned. And why is that? Uh, what makes Uzbekistan an interesting market? Sure. So, um, I mean, if you look at it from our perspective, in a sense that our broad mandate is Central Asia and you take Uzbekistan within that, it's the country which has the largest population. So about 33 million people, great demographics, uh, 65% of the people on the age of 35, an interesting diverse economy in a sense that they're not too natural resource uh, intense. Having said that, they have the largest open pit gold mine, they have gas, they have uranium, but they're also quite strong in agriculture, which makes up about 30% of GDP, including other sectors. And we've actually been investing in the country for a small level for about eight years. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, up until two and a half years ago, it was a very con- very difficult country to invest in. Why? Because effectively you had a dictatorship running the country. It was a closed economy. Uh, if I'm going to be extreme about it, you could even compare it to North Korea. Um, and the most practical problem at that point was actually taking capital outside of the country. And then what happened, so, so it was a country that we were following uh, quite closely for a while. What happened two and a half years ago effectively was uh, the president, uh, the previous president died uh, and his prime minister then became president. And the general consensus at the time was that uh, he would basically continue the previous policies given he was prime minister for so long under the previous president. But unbeknownst to everyone, he wakes up one morning and starts to perform rampage. And for us, the fall of the Berlin Wall moment, as we like to describe it, was when he decided to, to conduct two politically expensive liberalizations. The first of those was uh, in the currency market. So like some other frontier markets, uh, they had a dual exchange rate. One was a subsidized government and the other was a free market rate. And what was happening effectively, if you, the incentive system that laid about was you would try and import goods at a subsidized rate and then sell it at a free market rate. Making And what he did overnight was he basically unified the two rates and took 50% hits on the currency. Now, if you think about what that signals is to the elite to basically say the game is over and to take a 50% hit on the currency is an inflationary move in itself. Uh, and the fact that he would do that early on uh, under his new... Um, 
administration was, was, was a good sign for us. That also came with, came with was a capital amnesty. So people that, or companies that had funds abroad, they could bring it back at minimal tax rates. The second uh, reform was um, the liberalization of utility prices. So whilst the country has a lot of resources, a lot of the utilities were heavily subsidized and he lifted those. And again, that's a politically expensive move because it's inflationary. The general public will not like it. But the fact he did it early on again in his administration showed willingness to change. And then there are a whole host of reforms alongside that. So a lot of the old ministers uh, were fired. They've been replaced now by kind of young Western educated uh, technocrats. Um, so if you speak to the finance minister, he's kind of ex-Goldman, um, ex, uh, the current head of the capital market agency is ex-HSBC, ex-EBRD. Before, if you wanted to register a business about two months, today's 20 minutes, all online. They've committed to break state assets within uh, the next five years. They lifted visa restrictions for 85 months, which may sound like an intangible reform. What it basically signals is that they have a willingness or a preference to open up rather than, uh, let's say, security parent. Uh, and and there's, there's more reforms that came alongside that. But basically, you had uh, that's the reform side. If you look at it from the economic perspective as well, uh, it is a, it is a, it's a country with a very strong economic foundation. So they have total debt to GDP of less than 30%, so very under-leveraged. Total reserves to GDP of about 60%. And if you look at GDP per capita, it's it's at about $1,500. Now, this is a country which, as I mentioned, has a, has a lot of resources and a large population. Now, you compare that with a country like Georgia, which we, we, we've also were, were quite active in. Uh, Georgia has one-fifth of the population with no natural resources, really. And they're at about $5,000 per capita. Kazakhstan with a lower population but arguably more resources is at about 8,000. So you have the confluence of GDP coming from an extremely low base, a great economic foundation, attractive valuations, attractive opportunities, and you have the wind behind your back in the sense that there's a so for all these reasons, Uzbekistan basically became top of focus for us. Got it. Uh, you touch on the subject of capital controls. Is it easy to deploy capital in Uzbekistan? I mean, can you take capital out today as easy as you can invest in? Uh, yes. So, so, so last year was, was the year of foreign investments. The, the government has try, tried to go to great lengths to, to ease that process. They moved from basically a semi-fixed exchange rate regime to a freely floating regime. Um, and we've actually tested the process of getting capital in, getting capital out. And we, we've had no problems in that regard. Got it. I understand, too, that the tax code has been simplified recently, right? That's correct. It's, uh, is it correct that it's only eight tax brackets now, down from almost 40? Yeah. So, I mean, the numbers aren't accurate, but roughly 50% of the economy was in the black economy. Got it. Why? Because uh, as you as you mentioned, the, the the process for paying taxes was uh, one one was onerous and was complicated. So you had let's say let's call it roughly forty different. Uh, the, the the marginal tax rate was was about forty uh, percent. You had many different taxes to calculate. That tax rate's now been roughly halved and simplified to as you mentioned about uh, eight let's say different taxes. The irony with the implementation of that is is year on year the tax revenue for the government has gone up seventy percent. <laughs> Why? Because your business is just much more simpler to pay your taxes and you have an incentive to do so. What are the main drivers of the Uzbek economy? Is it industry, agriculture, services? Sure. So it's, um, it's a factor of a few things. But if you think of the country as, as let's say, a company, and you take, for example, uh, the agricultural sector, what they basically were were wholesalers. Uh, they had very good quality product, uh, selling at a cheap price, but very low on the value chain. Now, what they're trying to do is move up the value chain. So rather than just selling to companies, which would then repackage it in their own brands and then 
sell it on. They want to be, have the branded products themselves. So if you think of that, that's margin expansion. The other factor is that across the board, they're producing it under capacity. So whether it be gas, whether it be gold or any other resources. And there's a lot of investment going into to, to basically go to full capacity and actually increase that capacity. So if you think of it as a, as a company which has growing revenues and, 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 and raising mar- high, uh, higher margin. One other factor is, is simply that they're just coming from a, a, a extremely low base. So we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but if you look at the banking sector, 50% of uh, the population doesn't even have a bank account, mm-hmm. which by law now they have. To. Uh, so, so that brings about a lot of indirect benefits as well. The other factor is, as I mentioned, it's an under-leveraged country. Now, last February, they, they issued their first euro bond. They didn't particularly need it, uh, but the rationale for that was uh, for a sovereign rating to be applied such that other corporates could then tap into the international markets, uh, which you actually saw towards the end of last year when one of the banks also issued a euro bond. Now, it's not like another a lot of other countries where when they issue credit, it's to pay off, let's say, old credit. That capital is being invested into, let's say, productive resources, again, operating under capacity. So the marginal rate of return are actually quite high. And then the final part, uh, kind of a more intangible factor is Uzbekistan is, it plays in the core of the kind of Chinese One Belt, One Road program, um, particularly as it's one of only two doubly landlocked countries in the world. So from, a, from an infrastructure and from a transport perspective, it's quite vital. And you're seeing a lot of investments going, going into that, which basically, think of, if you think about it, it reduces the cost of doing business in the country and puts uh, businesses on a platform uh, to make it easier for them to, to transact and trade with the rest of the world. On this point, uh, Uzbekistan have uh, no sea access. Mm-hmm. How does it impact the commerce? I mean, uh, is the country heavily dependent on railroads or mostly roads? Who's building them? Can you tell us a little bit more about infrastructure? Sure. So, so basically, it's, it's railroads and roads, as you as you correctly mentioned. The bulk of that infrastructure investment uh, from a foreign perspective is coming from China, as I mentioned, as part of the kind of One Belt, One Road program. Kind of a, from, from a tourism perspective, for example, a few years ago, they built a bullet train going from Tashkent to Samarkand, which you can now go in two hours. I've been on it a few times. It's extremely good service. And so so, so that's the basically the bulk of the infrastructure uh, from a transport perspective that you see in the country. Got it. Shaft- Kastis is only the first president after Karimov's term, right? That's correct. Is it a stable government? And um, and how serious is the president and the elites about these reforms? Uh, is there anything that can stall them? Sure. So effectively, the way to, I, I guess the, the, the political model to think of um, Uzbekistan is probably, I mean, not economically comparable, but think of China or Singapore in the sense that you have a benevolent leader, which uh, for all, for, for what it seems for now has the best intentions to, to try and open up the country and uh, to, to bring about the economic growth, uh, but will be there ultimately for life. Now, what they've tried to do is, is, is free up political freedoms. Earlier uh, this year, they had um, their first parliamentary elections where foreign media was invited, um, domestic media was invited to both criticize and um, write about what was going on. And this may sound trivial to me and you, but if you talk to Uzbeks a few years ago, this was I mean, unheard of, right? You couldn't even uh, talk against uh, the government. So there's movements being made to kind of open up the country, but one should consider that he's basically here for a while. Which at this stage of the uh, the country is is broadly what you want as long as he he operates in a, let's say a, a decent manner. Okay, so you don't think there's anything that can stall these reforms, right? 
Well, uh, well, uh, there is. I mean, um, everything everything in life is a function of the expectations that you set, and so he, they, they've gone. They've set quite high expectations. So, from us looking from the outside, they're making great progress. But domestically, you speak to some people, and they they they, they say, well, some things could be done faster. Implementation here could be done better. Uh, and, and and as long as they manage that gap between expectation and actually what they implement, uh, I, I think they're I think they're on a good path. But if there's a, if that gap widens, um, then you could. Uh, potentially see some uh, uh, attention. Brilliant. What about the banking sector? Uh, you mentioned to me when we spoke last that uh, there's a big change happening in the sector. You actually touched on the subject uh, a while ago. And even though the majority of the banks are owned by the state, can you tell us a little bit about the banking sector? Sure. From an asset perspective, about 85% of the, the banking sector is, is state-owned. And uh, what, what they effectively do is, is act, act as a fiscal policy. So they give subsidized loans to, let's say, state or semi-state entities. Uh, now, now, what's left behind uh, is basically small to mid-sized businesses and the retail market. So, so our estimates are that about 50% of the population, as I mentioned, do not have a bank. Now, as, as I also mentioned, by law, that now has to change. Why? Because the law says that if you want to receive your wages, you can no longer receive it in cash. It has to be for a bank. Why? Because it brings about transparency. It's actually one can record it and it's actually see what's going on in the economy. The other interesting um, fact is that only 6% of the population has ever taken a loan from the bank. Now, if you look at it from a PPP perspective, the GDP of the country, let's say, is about $250 billion. So you have a huge gap in potential credit providing credit to, uh, to to the average population. And that's where we really see the opportunity and where we're actively investing in. If we look at net, in, net interest margins, uh, specifically on the retail side, we, we believe that say, you can get 15% to 20%, uh, and the 15% should be obtainable for at least ne the next five years. And you, you compare that with kind of net, net interest margins across across the world, it's it's arguably very high. And again, if you look at the infrastructure of these banks, they're operating in quite, a, quite an old manner. So uh, collections are there are no independent collections agency. It's based basically on reputation. Loan distribution is basically done from an Excel sheet. So there, there are many low-hanging fruits you can do to optimize basically internal processes and, and basically have a huge uh, retail banking opportunity in the country alongside these as well that we see. And how can investors get uh, exposure to Uzbekistan? Sure. So um, they, they have a they have a local stock market which trades at low valuation. So you're talking about three to four times earnings. The difficulty of the stock market is that uh, average daily trading volume is around say $100,000, $150,000, which makes it very difficult to deploy a meaningful capital. The other perspective is, as a general investment philosophy, what we try to do is invest only in truly private companies. Why? Because the incentives of management are much more aligned with you as a shareholder. And basically, if, if, if you were to invest in, in the public markets, our view is you're basically a passive minority investing in a state company where really incentives are not aligned. And the only thesis that I can rationalize is that you hope that foreign flows will come in and then you're effectively which is not a bad investment strategy, but if you want to be more active, it's probably investors can invest in the euro bonds, but there you're talking about yields of four and a half to five percent. It's attractive. What, what we've tried to do is is make it as easy as possible to access it. So we, we, we just launched a, a private equity fund dedicated to the country where inferior investors can invest and get exposure to the, obviously the underlying investments that we're making. But beyond that, it's, it's, you basically have to go to the country if you want to actively invest and try and find where, you, where, where, where you'd like to invest. And then the country is very receptive to that, um, should you want to. People are starting to talk about the crash in the markets after all the stimulus we had over the past 10 years. So 
In your opinion, what would happen to the Uzbek economy if there's a crash in the market? Sure. So um, it's a country that's historically run a run a current account surplus. At the moment, it's it's uh, running a slight deficit. The main reason being that they're they're kind of fast forwarding in the imports of capital goods to go to to increase capacity, as I mentioned earlier. So, but but when in a normalized state, if you're running a surplus economy where I mean, the bulk of your exports are, are resource based, uh, that that has a that has a negative impact. But going going back to the, the kind of factor again that it's coming from such a low base we believe ultimately if there should there be a global crisis it will reduce the traje- trajectory of growth but because it's coming from a low base we believe and obviously we're biased that it will be slightly decoupled and decorrelated from what's what will happen in the rest of it okay so in your opinion what are the main risks of investing in uzbekistan sure uh, i mean the, there are specific risks but a, a lot of the risks are your typical kind of frontier and emerging market risks so one is 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 probably not understanding the stakeholders structure of, of, of investments that you're getting involved. Um, so something we try to do is effectively create what we call a stakeholder map uh, to understand who the shareholders are, who the shareholders of the shareholders are, who the suppliers are, who the, and then you quickly create an idea of what is actually going on in the country, uh, uh, sorry, specifically to that investment. Uh, and then you can try and see where the, the weak points or the bottlenecks are. One risk is obviously currency. Uh, that, now, they had the big devalu- managed devaluation, let's say, a few years ago. Last year, the currency weakened by about 14%. That's that's always a risk. The way we see it is we're investing in either situations where other companies have underlying hard currency earnings, so actually you have a hedge in that the margins expand when the currency weakens, or or you're in a situation where you hope that the growth will, will, will outweigh that. And the, the third one is is basically, especially when it comes to private equity, you have to be sure that you can exit these exit these positions. So that's engaging with kind of uh, shareholders quite early on, engaging with uh, the ecosystem early on. Uh, such that um, they're aware of aware of the opportunity that when you need to you can exit. So let's call it even if you're investing in the public markets, uh, you have to be conscious of liquidity constraints that are there. Sure, Kian, it all sounds very interesting. Thanks for sharing. And again, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for coming to this program. No, oh, thank you very much, Manjaro. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.